Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. So fashion designers are not the only creative forces behind the clothes we wear. And yet rarely does the industry celebrate the seamstresses, pattern makers, and tailors that are its backbone around the world. Today's guests, however, are working to course correct that omission. Director Gia Lees and executive producer Jody Chan's documentary short, Invisible Seams, takes us behind the seams of the New York Garment District to meet eight talented Asian seamstresses and pattern makers that are an integral part of its beating heart. The film brings these women into the spotlight from anonymity, painting their intimate portraits of their lives in a story told through their own voices and tales. On Tuesday's episode, we talked in depth with Kimberly Jenkins about the historic and contemporary intersections of fashion and race, as well as the imperative to expand the narrative of fashion and fashion history. And all of these themes are encapsulated in this wonderful film, which really highlights women who have, quote, whether the pandemic, the rise of anti-Asian hate crimes, trials of immigration, and the never-ending demands of fashion cycles— Invisible Seams is a celebration of their talent and expertise and acknowledgement that their devotion to their craft is also a means of survival. We are so pleased to welcome Gia and Jody to dress to share more about their inspiring film. Gia, Jody, thank you both so much for joining us on Dressed. Thank you so Hi. much. Hi, Cassidy. Thanks so much for having us. <laughs> yeah, it's my pleasure. I'm so excited to talk to you about your wonderful short film, Invisible Seams. And I'd love if you could just introduce listeners to your film. Um, Invisible Seams is a short, a 17-minute documentary short about eight Asian seamstresses and pattern makers who work in New York City in the garment district. And can you tell us a little bit about what the inspiration was behind the film's creation? This film has been long gestating for over a year now. We, Gia and I started conversations around it since March of last year. I've worked in the fashion industry for over a decade now and have had the pleasure of working with a lot of people across the industry from merchandising, to marketing, to design, to, of course, production, and have just been really amazed by everyone and and what they do. And, you know, last year around March, you know, with the rise of hate crimes and everything that had been going on with the Atlanta shootings, I just felt very frustrated as an Asian immigrant living in New York about what was going on and felt very helpless in terms of what we can do and how we can protect ourselves as a community. And around that time, I came across Jia's short film, Spicy Village, about a noodle shop in Chinatown, which um, was about a woman who had moved here from China to start a noodle shop and how she's been dealing with racism and the pandemic and keeping her her business alive 
through these challenging times. And as I was watching it, I thought to myself, I wish there was something like this, but about the Asian seamstresses in the garment district. These are really of our industry. And I think when we think about fashion media, we're always talking about the designers and the models. And while it's really wonderful to, to tell their stories, I felt like it was time to, you know, give a spotlight to these women, especially when you think about, when you talk about ateliers, you often have this very romanticized version of an atelier in Paris, of Chanel or Dior. And when you think about Asian seamstresses, you often get this connotation of cheap labor or fast fashion. And the ladies that I work with are just as good as their counterparts in Europe. So this idea was sort of born and I reached out to Gianna on, on Instagram, on DM and introduced myself and wanted to see if she would be interested in making with me. And we got talking and that's how we got started. Yeah, and it's really is a beautiful film. You've done such a wonderful job. And I really love the messages that it, you know, puts forth. So, you know, one, designers are not the only creative forces behind the creation of fashion. And literally, you look behind the seams of fashion to meet all of these people, really, that have a very skilled set of tools that they use and incorporate into what they do. And I'd love if you could introduce us to some of the women in the film and maybe how you found these women to interview, share some of their stories, and if there's any that didn't make it in the film that you want to present here. The eight women in the film, I believe Jody found most of them. <laughs> I think Any and Atin are from Rachel Comey. Yes, Rachel had been was super supportive from the get-go, and she was very generously opened her atelier and her team to us, and they were the first subjects that Gia filmed. Yeah, that was the very first interview. Um, we filmed sort of live in their workspace in in the studio uh, here in New York, and it was in, I think it was a morning when everyone in the background is actually still working. So it was very you know very condensed sort of uh, production, but in those two or three hours that I was interviewing any and Atin, they really opened up. I think they had a lot to say, despite the fact that we really didn't know each other for very long. So, and then after any and Atin, that was when Jody, I think you met um, Nay. Yes, mm-hmm. that's right. There, there's an article by Kaylee Roshich on WWD about the rise of hate crimes around the garment district that came out, I think, around May of last year. And um, as I read it, obviously, it struck a nerve with exactly what we were working on. And Nay was featured in the article. She was interviewed in the article. And that's how we reached out to see if she, plus one of the ladies in her atelier, would want to be featured. Yeah, so Nay opened us up to, you know, Liang Qin, who... um, works in her atelier. And also, I think Chris, she's not in the film, but she also helped facilitate some of the arrangements. And then after Nay, it was Joy, mm-hmm. which Jody also you got in touch yes. with. <laughs> so Joy was featured, I think, in an article on Porter magazine about her work and, and her design work. And I thought her process as a designer was really, really interesting. So we reached out and she happened to be undergoing an apprenticeship at 
the WOW project in Chinatown, and her mentor was none other than Lorraine. Uh, and so we had the pleasure of interviewing both Joy and Lorraine together. And actually, um, Dia and I both went to her showcase, which was the culmination of her work the past year or so with Joy uh, over the weekend, which was really nice to see and, and a really beautiful sort of coming together of all of these worlds over the weekend. Yeah, and their exchange in the film is one of those like really, you know, heartwarming moments. And it also shows this kind of multi-generational line of women working in this industry. So Lorraine, why are your scissors so big? <laughs> I used to do my own production down here. Yeah. Back in the day. So the early 80s were kind of the heyday of yeah. the New York garment industry. There were still lots of sewers around New York City back then. So when you graduated, your first job was? It was cutting cardboard patterns. <laughs> <laughs> cardboard? I mean, oak tag. I see, I see. But I learned a lot from that, you know, because everyone was together in that one spot, the one nice. space, yeah. Yeah, it's rare these days to have everybody working yeah. in the same space. Now it's all like on the other side of the world. Mm -hmm. Some of the women you'd interviewed had just entered the industry and then others had been doing it for decades and had really seen a huge change um, from, you know, of the industry from like its booming period. And they talk about the 70s and 80s and then post 90s, how a lot of the industry left New York City, went overseas. But it was really refreshing to see, maybe it's not as booming as it once was, but that it still exists and that, you know, that brands like Rachel Comey are still using and keeping industry in New York City and in America was really cool. Absolutely. And I think if you even look at the red carpets of today, you look at Met Gala, for example, with all these big brands uh, being present on the red carpet, you're probably intuitively thinking that these gowns are being made in Paris, in Milan, in the fashion capitals, in Europe. But actually, there are gowns, including, for example, Lizzo's gown by Tom Brown was made by Ney of 1 to 13 Studio. And then the gown uh, that's Altuzara, worn by Rachel Brosnahan, was worn by Yat was made by Yachi, um, who's also featured in the film. And that's really almost couture level, if not couture. 1 to 13, in fact, produced a couple of looks that just went down the control runway for Tom Brown. So we really don't associate that level, that caliber of production with New York ateliers when actually they very much exist. And not only that, they're run by these professionals who are very young and they're just getting started. Yeah, I, one of my favorite moments is the film. In the film is when one of the women says that the highlight of her career was making a dress for Michelle Obama. <laughs> And in my head, I'm like, okay, was that Jason Wu or Narcisco Rodriguez? Like who, I wonder who. That was Rachel. That was oh, okay. Rachel Comey, actually. Rachel Comey, okay. That's so nice because she talked about, I think she arrived in New York with her family, I think it was nine days before 9-11. And to think, fast forward a couple of decades later, she makes a dress that's worn by the first lady. I mean, if that's not the American dream, I don't know what is. It's, it's such a poignant story. Yeah, and in many ways, this is an immigrant story. I'm a Korean. I came 1997. 
you know, I used to like to see the Vogue magazine, Elle magazine, and so I was kind of like, oh my God, I'm gonna be there. A lot of the women featured are immigrants. Can you talk a little bit about that narrative arc of the film? Yeah, I think every woman in the story is an immigrant, including the younger ones. And I think, you know, that was really important. I'm an immigrant. Jody's an immigrant. Um, mm-hmm. I think, you know, in talking about how that experience has changed someone's trajectory and also what sort of roads are open to them or are closed to them, I think Fanny, one of the last sort of additions to our um, interview pool was really poignant in what she said in terms of, you know, which windows are open for me or which doors are open for me in this country um, with her extensive background in engineering and, you know, very sort of high level, highly skilled work to come to this country and be making packaging for watches. I think that's at one point, you know, maybe her lowest low. And she, I think you really felt that through her story, that that wasn't what she was supposed to be doing. And that, you know, she realized that in her path to learning a skill such as pattern making and not uh, being a seamstress because she was terrible at it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think, you know, Fanny's story is what helped me realize the differences between each position and how that sort of assimilation or language in this culture either adds to your success or whether you can stay in the industry or not. Yeah, and there's at one point in the film, I, one of the women is talking about how um, she didn't speak English. So she started teaching her boss, who was really smart. She says she started teaching him Chinese. <laughs> yeah. Language is a really important factor, you know, as we approach making this film. I often hear just day to day when we're speaking about Asian seamstresses, we're talking about them and we hear them say, oh, they're shy, they don't want to talk, when that's really not the case if you listen to them speak to each other in Korean or in Mandarin. They're sassy, they're funny, they crack jokes at each other, they have a really amazing camaraderie. We're just not necessarily talking to them and getting their stories in their native language. So as we set out to make this film, we felt that it was very important to interview these ladies in their native languages so they felt comfortable in sharing their story. And actually, you know, before we came out with the film, we took the film to to show it to each of the ladies individually to get their feedback, to see what they thought. So we brought it to 1 to 13 studio and Nay was so sweet. She really cultivates the sense of like family with her atelier. She got everyone to stop what they were doing and they crowded around this pattern cutting table. And I put out my laptop and I played the film. And this was in the very beginning when the film only had English subtitles. So there were some scenes when the interview was in English and the subtitles were in English. And then the team 
that didn't read English sort of lost interest in those moments. And that's why I got back to John. I was like, we need to switch it. So when they're speaking English, the subtitles are in, in Chinese. And then when they're speaking Mandarin, the subtitles are in English. So they get the full experience. And that's sort of how it came about. And we also have a version in Korean subtitles and, you know, from a language perspective, we really wanted to make it as accessible as possible so that the ladies who are sort of making it to celebrate could also watch it and, and feel like it's their own as well. And yeah, you said a little bit about how you learned um, about how the industry worked and the different positions. Can you kind of talk to us a little bit more about that for listeners who may not know? The film's so fascinating in that it takes you behind the scenes of this industry that exists in New York City um, that many of us really haven't been introduced to before. Yeah, I had no idea what a pattern maker was. You know, I kind of have like a somewhat of a visual idea, like people cutting sketches of something and they're kind of like drafts but I didn't know at what step of the process that was going to happen and I didn't know where something would leave the designer and eventually head over to production and what each person in that line um, did and so I think you know it took a long time to understand each person's individual role and also to what level that they're responsible for in terms of communicating, whether it was through body language or, you know, how do they communicate to each other? How do they convey an idea? And I think after filming with Yati, after filming with any, and sort of getting like a little bit of a clue, but it wasn't until I think talking to Joy, Lorraine, and Fanny at the end where I realized, okay, so you know, essentially a pattern maker is like an architect of the form. And that level of knowledge and skill and also communication, it comes from, you know, so, so much time spent doing this and so much skill doing this. And it should command the level of respect that architects have in this culture. And so much of that is just so difficult for the average consumer, for the average person who looks at fashion to really understand like how to interpret you know just someone's sketch into an actual form that you can wear it wasn't until I think Fanny's interview really brought it home for me because she really made that very clear as to here's one thing that I'm really bad at <laughs> which is you know seam, being a seamstress and sewing but then like I can imagine what that final out product is and through her engineering background and the way that she can sketch you know she really put it together um but also how crucial like being able to understand uh, mentally what that process is and knowing that that's what she wanted to do how, how crucial it was for her in terms of you know that's the career that she wanted that's where she saw herself in the industry and that's part of the agency that she wanted too and Jody, as someone who works in the fashion industry, have you seen the New York Garment District change over the years? And can you give us like kind of a little idea of how these women's work fits within like the larger American fashion industry, for instance? I, I feel very lucky the fact that I was able to partner with Jia on this project. And Jia happens to be someone who has an extremely fresh perspective about fashion, because I think Cassidy, both you and I are 
steeped in the fashion world. We love fashion. We live and breathe it every day. So there's certain things that's really obvious to us that for somebody else on the outside is not so obvious. So just asking really basic questions that I think for someone who doesn't know about fashion is a really valid questions. And that's what we want with this film. We want as you said before, it's an immigrant story. It's a universal story. We want as many people, especially without fashion backgrounds, not non-immigrant backgrounds, you know, people who are just very different, their, their lives are very different to these women to sort of be in their shoes and, and know what it's like. So I, I feel really fortunate in that regard. I think working in fashion and especially within the fashion industry, I've definitely suddenly noticed the mood shift in the garment district since the pandemic. Of course, everything shut down at the onset of COVID. And, you know, these ladies were really our first responders in the very beginning of the pandemic when everything shut down. You know, there's people whose jobs, such as myself in marketing communications, I can work from home, but these ladies cannot work from home. They have the machines, they have the you know, drafting tables, they have their forms that they drape on, they have to work from the office. So as we're complete, trying to complete collections and, and not miss a single collection, these ladies are braving not only dangers of possibly being attacked on the subway, commuting in from Brooklyn or Queens in New York, to the dangers of COVID itself and coming into the office to, to work on these collections without which we would have had nothing to sell, nothing to market, no collection, no business. So they really are our first line of defense when it comes to our business. Um, and again, the fact that we hadn't really celebrated it, every collection you know, with the pandemic is a miracle that we can produce it and we can make it. But they really were the first ones to, to make it happen. And so in the backdrop of all of these hate crimes, uh, you know, according to the Center of the Study of Hate and Extremism, there's been a 340% increase in anti-Asian hate as of last year, and two-thirds of those attacks were on Asian women. So to think that these ladies are braving these risks and, and still coming in on a day-to-day -day basis to do their jobs is, is really amazing. There's one beautiful story that I love from Nay that didn't make it into the film, she actually took over the business, I don't think, not long before the pandemic. Uh, she had worked within the atelier. I think there was an old gentleman who owned the atelier and he decided to retire and sell the business. And I think Nay by then had fallen in love with the ladies, fallen in love with the team and decided to get together her savings and buy the atelier from the gentleman. And she basically inherited it at the onset of the pandemic. And she really felt for the ladies and felt concerned for their well-being. But she still had orders to finish and orders to fulfill. So what she did was she actually rented a minivan to pick up all the ladies around Queens, drive them into the Gama district every day to make sure that they didn't need to commute and then drive them back home every day. Um, this was in the thick of the pandemic. So I thought that was just such a lovely and touching story. And it really goes to show that, you know, 
the, the community is one big family that really wants to look out for each other. Yeah, and you shared one of your favorite stories um, there. Are there any others that you want to share or experiences from making the film? Or was there anything or anyone that surprised you? Anyone? I mean, they were all surprising. <laughs> Um, I think Fanny is very surprising. Um, Fanny actually came to me through a friend who had filmed with her dance troupe on a separate film. So, you know, Fanny is retired. She's 76. She's a dancer. She teaches dance. She's incredibly lively and, you know, has a lot of (laughs) social activity going on. So she made time to be in the film, which was really nice for her. And, um, I think her whole story was just fascinating. Um, it just chronicles, you know, this incredible story of being a dancer in China and immigrating and basically starting from scratch here. And Fanny also had a lot of these memorabilia from her work, notebooks from her time at CPC, and just all the notes that she took while learning the language and learning English. I think those were invaluable for us. We didn't really have that from anyone else. And Joy, in particular, um, is deeply connected to the Wing On Wo and Wild Project residency that she's doing in Chinatown, which Lorraine is the sort of mother yeah. <laughs> in, in residence, Mama Lum. And, you know, her family's store has been there for generations and they have such deep ties to Chinatown, but in particular, Lorraine has worked in the industry, I believe, for The Gap for several decades and knows a lot of these women who used to be um, in the garment union in Chinatown. So that was also something that happened, I think, on the 24th of last month, where they had the 20th anniversary of the garment workers strike. So a lot of that context is around, you know, the labor unions and what happened to the Chinatown garment industry after 9-11. So a lot of that, you know, I I don't know much about this as I'm not a historian, but I think that was also really sort of serendipitous to discover with Joy um, and how her work currently is informed by a lot of that sort of like slow labor and slow fashion making process. And you've mentioned the WOW Project a couple of times. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? I think the WOW Project is like a community-based art and activism platform project. It's kind of a loose, like, word. Um, And Joy is doing her second residency there, I think, this year. And she and Lorraine work on a collection of um, clothes together garments, you know, and they put a lot of thought into it and It's like an art project that lasts for an entire year. Oh, very cool. I think one thing that really struck me sitting in on some of the interviews with Jia and and also initially watching the project was that the common denominator between all of these eight women was their sense of pride in what they did and their their vocation and, and seeing it as their career. I think another starting point we wanted to make this film was because part of the reason we think that Asian women is a target of hate crime is because a lot of people see them as invisible, as voiceless, that they don't really know their stories, they don't know you know, their backgrounds and their families and, and who they are. And so when they see them on the subway, they think you know, they're an easy target, they're not gonna talk back. So 
part of the reason why we made this was because we wanted to share their stories to show that they have interior lives, they have careers, they have skills, they have families. And in seeing these ladies share their stories, I was just so struck by how proud everyone was of their work and the years that they put into perfecting their craft. I think maybe it was Amy who said, you know, I love looking at the magazines and, and seeing people wear my dresses and, and that's enough for me. And, and I just love that. They're, they're just happy to be sort of in the background, being the invisible seams, if you will, holding together the industry and, and doing the hard work, uh, which was such a source of pride for them, which I thought was really beautiful. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation, so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For a limited time, dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Dress listeners, we often refer to ourselves on the show as dress detectives, but what if we told you that you could travel back in time and solve your own fashionable mysteries? Because you can, by joining us in playing June's Journey. And April, I can't tell you how much fun I've had playing June's Journey. It's this <laughs> hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour and intrigue of the 1920s with this diverse cast of characters. And basically, each new scene takes you further into the story of a thrilling murder mystery that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. You will sleuth with June in the antique parlors of New York, the chic sidewalks of Paris, and you can even build your own luxury island estate where you get to decorate and plant decadent gardens. And there's also a chat and challenge feature where you can play alongside friends. So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. And ultimately, what are you hoping viewers will take away from this film? I think one thing that we love from the feedback of this film is that there's so many people out there who have a loved one, a mother, someone who has worked in the garment industry. And they've, you know, this is the first time that they've seen anything like that in a film that represents what their relatives went through. I think we only just cracked the tip of it in terms of we have Chinese women, we have Korean women in the film, but the diaspora of, you know, people that work in this industry goes far and wide with 
you know, a lot of people who are saying that their families are from Mexico or they're Latinx or <laughs> Vietnam or Thai or, or any number of um, countries that we just couldn't really cover <laughs> in this amount of time. So, yeah, the feedback has been great so far. Um, I hope, you know, viewers just know about it. They see that these women work in this field. Um, they can put a face to it. And then it's not like all Asian women, all Asian people work in sweatshops and, I'm you know, in these horrible much. conditions and mm -hmm. have, you know, no skills. And they're just kind of like minions in this cog of an industry. I think there's a lot of skill. There's a lot of talent. There's a lot of creativity that is on the sort of back end or back of house of this industry. That's just not realized by the general public. And maybe in seeing that you know people will take more care when they purchase their clothing mm -hmm. yeah both my grandmothers were seamstresses in hong kong so maybe subconsciously this is a love letter to them but like jia was saying i think a lot of amazing conversations came about once we launched the film people connecting to it people sharing their own stories of you know women in their families being seamstresses and having worked in the garment district but I also think another theme that emerged from these conversations was the idea of education and the younger generation entering the fashion industry. I think a lot of them, when they're getting interested and excited about potentially joining the industry, they just think of wanting to become a designer. They go to FIT or they go to Parsons and they study design and they either want to launch their own brand or join the design team of a house. But then they're not really thinking about or aspiring to become a pattern maker or a seamstress or, you know, a, a sewer. Why not? These are very respectable careers and vocations, and people should consider entering the industry. Maybe you do want to be a designer. Maybe you do want to launch a brand later down the line, but it's perfectly wonderful to join the industry through these jobs and, and learning. I know Nate right now is training assistants and trainees at 1 to 13 Atelier so that we can make sure that from a uh, people perspective that this industry is sustainable, that we keep having new talent come in. And so we also hope not only is this film shedding light on Asian women in the, in, in the industry, but also shedding light on these jobs and the fact that these people with skills should be respected, should be looked up to, and that the younger generation should aspire to become someone working for Yachi or becoming Yachi one day or, or working for Nay and, and running an atelier one day. That would be amazing. So thank you both so much for being here. This was such a wonderful conversation today. I know our listeners are going to go out and watch this wonderful film. We're going to provide a link in our show notes. Um, and we're going to be playing a trailer right after we end this conversation here. But before we do, can you just name the eight women featured in the film? Sure. The eight women are A Qin, Annie Choi, Liang Qichen, Nei Huang, Lorraine Lum, Joy Mao, Yati Sun, and Fanny Huang. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Cassidy. Thanks, Cassidy. Thank you, Jody. Thank you, Gia. And as we promised, here is the trailer for the film. 
Do you know in Chinese the industrial sewing machine is called a car? Is it? Like you step on the pedal and it goes. Making a garment is not only to make yourself pretty. I just think that's such a myth because of how many hands go into creating beautiful clothing. Pretty much all the business is like that. It's like there's a lot of behind the scenes. 印象深的一件衣服，只是我之前为那个奥巴马夫人做过一件。还记得，在那个包围二十八街那个口上，cutting cardboard patterns。我来到美国只有就是认真做衣服，什么都没有想。防护衣、PPE啊、口罩都做，好几万件。We finished one. Beautiful. There is this wealth of knowledge that I've come from generations past. Like, how can we take that and create something from it? Dress listeners, head over to invseams.com to learn more about the film. And you will also find a link in our show notes to watch the film in its entirety. Well, that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider the invisible seams of the clothes you wear next time you get dressed. For images accompanying each week's episode, please follow us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast. We love hearing from you. So if you'd like to email us, please do so at dress at iheartmedia.com. And as always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartVideo that makes the show possible each and every week. Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.